Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of violence, killing, assault, and suicidal ideations. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Every few years, a peculiar pattern repeats itself. A grisly murder, a nationwide manhunt, and a ravenous public outcry for justice eager to burn anyone in its crossfires. When the case goes to court, it becomes the proverbial trial of the century, a term used for a number of cases during the 1900s. But one of the least forgiving was that of Ohio versus Sam Shepard. In the months after Sam Shepard's wife was found bludgeoned to death in their home bedroom, his quaint lakeside community was quick to turn against him, as was the national press, which brought his darkest secrets into the blinding spotlight until both he and his loved ones were scorched beneath it. Theirs is the lesson we learn time after time as we treat flawed people like circus sideshows made for our own entertainment. No murder has just one victim. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath it boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to offer Alastair some medical insight into our final episode of Dr. Sam Shepard, our neurosurgeon whose story, when you shine a light on it, will end in a way that is guaranteed to surprise you. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on Dr. Sam Shepard, an accomplished neurosurgeon suspected of murdering his wife Marilyn on July 4, 1954. Once a hero to his community, Sam found himself on the wrong end of their fury overnight. Last time, we discussed Sam and Marilyn's childhood romance, which devolved into a bitter, strained marriage, culminating in her gruesome murder. Today, we'll discuss Sam's bizarre trial and his desperate bid for freedom. We'll also track the tragic twists and turns of Sam's life, including the deaths of two patients under his care. And of course, we'll examine if he may have used his medical training to get away with murder. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, 
the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Bay Village, Ohio is an affluent suburb outside Cleveland situated on the coast of Lake Erie. In the early 1950s, Sam and Marilyn Shepard settled there, hoping the peaceful town would help save their marriage. Unfortunately, on the morning of July 4, 1954, their idyllic hopes became a nightmare. Splattered blood painted the walls and dyed the sheets. Marilyn lay in a state of partial undress with more than two dozen bludgeoning wounds covering her body. Their seven-year-old son, Chip, slept soundly in his bed. And 30-year-old Sam Shepard sat shaking in his garage, trying to make sense of the morning. When questioned by homicide detectives that afternoon, Sam insisted that he had witnessed a bushy-haired man standing over his wife as she bled out. He grappled with the intruder but was knocked out in the process. His injuries seemed to corroborate this. At the hospital later that day, doctors determined that Sam had suffered at least one concussion and a spinal contusion. These injuries could indicate that Sam was seriously beaten by some mysterious assailant. However, there's also the possibility that this beating was self-inflicted. A spinal contusion is a bleed or bruise in the spinal cord, and it's virtually always caused by an external impact or force applied to the spine. Like concussions, spinal contusions can be really dangerous because they involve very vital and sensitive anatomy, and any damage to the bundle of nerves that make up the spinal cord can have lasting consequences. Neural pathways within the spinal cord can't actually regenerate once damaged, Alistair, so an inflammatory bleed there could result in things like long-term paralysis, heart issues, and nerve impulse disruptions. Sam could have theoretically caused these injuries to himself, say from forcefully slamming his body into a large, unforgiving object, or from taking a serious fall. It's hard for me to assess the likelihood of this, though, given my inability to examine him. Like the identity of Marilyn's killer, the cause of Sam's injuries certainly became a topic of debate. Sam's injuries aside, the public seemed convinced he'd killed Marilyn. In the weeks that followed, the town grew restless. Their fervor swelled into what can only be described as a mass frenzy. Meanwhile, the Bay Village police tried to find the bushy-haired man that Sam claimed attacked him. They weren't prepared 
to make an arrest. As time passed with no other suspect in sight, people complained that Sam remained a free man while newspapers attacked his character. Pretty soon, the Bay Village police cowered to mounting social pressure. Within a month, their investigation turned toward the bereaved doctor. And it was all too easy to build a case against Sam. As Marilyn's husband, Sam had more opportunity than anyone. His means were determined when the county coroner speculated that the murder weapon was some sort of blunt object, possibly a surgical instrument, which Sam would have had. His medical bag was at the scene of the crime. Now, to be clear, the police didn't find any blunt surgical instrument that fit the profile. But the speculation was enough. They just needed to nail down a motive, which the media readily supplied. A rumor had come out that, at some point, Sam had become sterile from working with X-ray machines. Unable to get Marilyn pregnant, Sam may have panicked when he discovered Marilyn had a second child on the way. This theory isn't viable, and we do know that Sam impregnated Marilyn eight years before the murder, meaning he was fertile at some point. The diagnostic radiology Sam was engaged in, which were simple x-rays, only involved low doses of radiation. Remember, more complex exams, like CT exams, weren't yet invented. To cause any destructive effect on his sperm, he'd have to be exposed to much higher doses. In fact, even if male reproductive cells or sperm cells happen to get directly exposed to this level of radiation, there'd still be essentially no risk. X-ray machine operators are only exposed to about 70 to 100 millirems of radiation per year, and they're never exposed to the primary X-ray beam. Instead, they're exposed to the less harmful radiation that scatters once an X-ray beam strikes its destination. Furthermore, reliable safety measures surrounding shielding, distancing, and the timing of an X-ray are all means of further minimizing exposure. The claim that Sam was sterilized on the job is truly a stretch. But in the 1950s, the police didn't seem to think so. What was once a salacious news story became the underlying motive in the murder investigation. The same day that the Cleveland press ran the headline, Why Isn't Sam Shepard in Jail?, the police arrested him. It seemed authorities were almost entirely guided by public opinion. Sam agreed. As the doctor climbed into the back of a police car, spectators heard him say over the cheering, apparently the press got its way. Following a formal indictment on first-degree murder charges, Sam waited in his tiny jail cell, decorating it with drawings from his seven-year-old son, Chip. To avoid traumatizing the boy any further, Sam forbade him from visiting the jail. Sam reasoned that soon enough, he'd have his day in court, be declared innocent, and everything would go back to normal. He was convinced that once the jury heard his account, he'd be off the hook. However, Sam had enemies 
he hadn't foreseen. In autumn 1954, 70-year-old Judge Blythen oversaw jury selection, but he didn't sequester them. In fact, the jurors became local celebrities, free to absorb media rumors more unbelievable than anything the prosecution could repeat under oath. Apparently, Judge Blythen didn't perceive an issue, and he liberally allowed television crews to set up cameras in the courtroom on December 9, 1954, when Sam was finally led to the stand to testify. As America watched with bated breath, the prosecution dug their nails into Sam. Dozens of witnesses, including Sam's friends, neighbors, and medical colleagues, were called to testify to Sam's guilt. And the prosecution was so relentless that even those sympathetic to Sam spoke negatively about him. Under oath, it was impossible for them to deny that there had been serious cracks in Sam's marriage and in his character. Then, the prosecution dug into Sam's account of the July 4th tragedy, which had apparently evolved multiple times. He hadn't even mentioned the bushy-haired man in his first interview. He described the attacker even more generally as a white bipedal form. This struck lawyers as odd, as well as Sam's claim that the intruder engaged him in a fistfight. According to them, the attacker could have much more easily knocked Sam out with the blunt weapon he'd used to kill Marilyn. It was even fishier that there was no sign of forced entry at the residence, and that no useful fingerprints were found at the scene, other than those belonging to Sam, Marilyn, and their son Chip. The absence of anyone else's prints made the bloodstain on Sam's pants look even more suspicious. Sure, the pants might have stained when he'd found his wife dead, but it seemed equally as possible that Marilyn's blood splashed onto him while he was hitting her. His missing shirt only furthered this hypothesis. And Sam claimed he couldn't remember where the shirt had gone. To anyone watching, Sam Shepard's fate might have seemed doomed by the prosecution's ruthless personal attacks. However, Sam appeared almost annoyed by the proceedings, still convinced that his innocence could be proven. His lawyers focused on his supposedly unfakeable injuries. They also leaned into the clues that suggested a burglary had taken place in the home that night, namely, an upended medical bag that had spilled its contents all over the living room. Of course, Sam could very well have done this himself to make it appear as though there had been a break-in. And the prosecution retorted with the fact that Sam wasn't new to the act of lying. He'd previously lied under oath during the coroner's inquest when he said he never slept with his co-worker Susan Hayes. Since then, Susan had admitted to the affair. If Sam could lie about this, prosecutors asked, what else might he be lying about? In the face of that question, all Sam could do was insist that he loved his wife. <laughs> 
After over a month of heated testimony, the trial concluded on December 17, 1954. Judge Blythen addressed the jury, advising them on the gravity of their decision. The death penalty was a real possibility. In 1954 alone, four people were executed in the state of Ohio, all by electric chair. Judge Blythen informed the jury that a guilty verdict for murder in the first degree would most likely result in Sam's death. The jury took five excruciating days to reach a verdict. By the time they returned to the courtroom, all presuppositions had gone out the window. No one, least of all Sam Shepard, knew what to expect. Coming up, the jury delivers their shocking verdict. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers. Global companies with unexpected motives and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, Join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In December 1954, 30-year-old Sam Shepard faced a trial over the murder of his wife, Marilyn Shepard. Well before the trial began, the press and public had seemingly made up their minds about his guilt. Only time would tell if the jury would agree. On December 21st, the jury delivered its verdict. Sam was not guilty for murder in the first degree, but he was guilty of murder in the second degree. The jury reasoned that, since Sam had no history of physical violence, Marilyn's murder could not have been premeditated. By their ruling, it was most likely a spur-of-the-moment argument gone horribly wrong. This technicality meant that Sam would not be sentenced to death. Instead, Judge Blythen dealt him life in prison. 
Sam's brothers and defense team quickly filed for appeal, but it was just as quickly denied. Defeated, Sam quickly lost hope in his efforts to appeal his case. It didn't help that both of his parents passed away within a year, and both deaths received enormous press attention due to Sam. In the summer of 1955, about a year after Marilyn's murder, 31-year-old Sam was bused to Ohio Penitentiary to serve his sentence. This was one of the most brutal prisons in the country, not to mention it was at double its designed occupancy. The prison ran rampant with fighting, rioting, and sexual assault. And as a celebrity prisoner, Sam felt a target on his back. Concerned for his safety, Sam made use of the prison's gym and began to work out excessively. He'd always been a large man, but in order to survive, Sam had to become downright dangerous. Unfortunately, Sam's rigorous activity soon led him to injure his back. To manage the pain, Sam reportedly came to rely on prescription drugs, possibly barbiturates, which he misused later in life. Barbiturates are central nervous system depressants that decrease anxiety, induce sleep, and relieve pain. In the past, these drugs were heavily used and abused, and in fact, skyrocketing overdoses in the 1950s and 60s prompted the U.S. to schedule barbiturates as controlled substances. Interestingly, though, there's still some medical validity today in taking advantage of their analgesic properties. Fiorinol, for example, is a barbiturate that's consistently been used over the years to treat tension headaches, and it's still administered in combination with drugs like aspirin. However, compared to Sam's day, doctors currently use barbiturates much less because they're dangerous, heavily addictive, and there are safer alternatives. This class of medications can also be difficult to dose, and a small overdose can easily lead to coma or death. Sam would have turned to barbiturates because of how powerful they are and how accessible they were at the time. It's easy for people to become addicted to these drugs, and Sam was probably benefiting from them mentally as well as physically. The weight of facing life in prison is unimaginable, and barbiturates probably became an integral part of Sam's coping strategy. He took the pills as often as he could get his hands on them. It seemed Dr. Sam Shepard was doomed to rot in prison. Until 1960, when he received a letter from a German heiress, Ariana Teben Johans. She'd been reading up on Sam's case for over a year when she decided to send him a letter. She wasn't so sure he was guilty. After 32-year-old Ariana's words of encouragement reached Sam, they began corresponding regularly, and Sam fell in love once again. Three years later, in 1963, Ariana surprised him with a visit. It was the first time they'd seen each other in person. By the time Ariana left the prison four hours later, she and Sam were engaged. 
His resolve renewed. Sam wanted freedom more than ever. But nearly a decade had passed since his first trial. His lawyer, William Corrigan, had died. So he hired a new one, a tactful young attorney from Boston named F. Lee Bailey. As Bailey built an entirely new defense case for Sam, yet another tale of a doctor accused of murdering his wife was ready to sweep the nation. His name was Dr. Richard Kimball, and he was the protagonist of ABC drama The Fugitive. By 1964, it was one of the highest-rated television shows, and many believed that the character of Dr. Kimball was based on Dr. Sam Shepard. Although the show's creators denied this, the similarities were obvious. In the show, Kimball had been framed for the murder of his wife, escaped from prison, and was doggedly pursued by authorities. All the while, he endeavored to clear his name by finding the real murderer, a mysterious one-armed man, not unlike Sam's bushy-haired man. Though Sam couldn't exactly leverage the public's favor for Kimball into sympathy for his cause, he did see a meaningful breakthrough for his case. A recent move by the U.S. Supreme Court made it easier for federal courts to hear cases pertaining to the possible violation of a defendant's constitutional rights in their convicting trial. This meant that Sam could have his charges overturned if Bailey could prove that Sam's initial trial had infringed on his constitutional rights. Given how biased it had been, Bailey didn't have to look far for proof. He quickly submitted the testimony of a reporter who had heard Judge Blythen say Sam was, quote, guilty as hell before the trial had even begun. This proved the trial corrupt, which violated Sam's constitutional right to a fair trial. Sam's conviction was overturned and a retrial was soon ordered. For the first time in years, Sam caught a glimpse of hope. On July 16, 1964, 40-year-old Dr. Sam Shepard left the penitentiary walls after nearly a decade in prison. During his retrial, he'd be a free man. Though he didn't bother to keep a low profile. Upon his release, he went straight to a hotel where he met up with Ariana. The following morning, the two fled to Chicago and were married. He didn't want to risk waiting until after the trial. After all, he wasn't out of the woods just yet. He had to help his lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, develop an effective strategy for defense. Not that Sam was much help. After his release, he began drinking heavily, which didn't mix well with his apparent prescription drug addiction. Bailey knew this wouldn't do Sam any favors in the upcoming trial, especially if Sam spoke with a drunken drawl. So he decided that Sam shouldn't testify. Instead, Bailey leaned into a key piece of new evidence, a dented flashlight washed up on the shore of Lake Erie. 
It had been found shortly after Sam's sentencing, but Bay Village authorities had made no attempt to analyze it. Instead, they'd locked it away in an evidence cabinet to gather dust, perhaps because they still believed, without evidence, that Sam had used a surgical tool to kill Marilyn. Somehow, Bailey managed to unearth the dented flashlight from the investigation files anyway. And it served to corroborate forensic findings. According to experts, Marilyn's injuries and the blood splatter at the scene suggested that the weapon would have been a thick, heavy item about one foot long. The description perfectly matched the flashlight. While this didn't exonerate Sam, it did put a wrinkle in the prosecution's case. And Sam's luck didn't stop there. During jury selection, the prosecution failed to ask potential jurors whether or not they had seen The Fugitive. Given the show's popularity, many of them likely had. This no doubt would have swayed the opinions of the jurors, as the show undoubtedly garnered sympathy for its innocent and wrongly accused protagonist. All in all, the retrial was over in under a month. On November 16, 1966, the jury left the courtroom to debate Sam's case. Just before midnight, they returned with their verdict. In the retrial of Ohio versus Shepard, Sam was found not guilty. The courtroom erupted in cheers and shouting. Sam and Ariana burst into tears and embraced as reporters surrounded them. They'd landed a victory. In the summer of 1967, the fugitive ended with Dr. Kimball leaving a courthouse swamped by reporters. It was one of the highest rated finales in TV history and a memorable case of art imitating life. Still, unlike in The Fugitive, the question lingered. Who killed the doctor's wife? While the lack of answers may have contributed to Sam's continued substance abuse, it didn't stop him from returning to the medical field and garnering more suspicion. In 1968, 44-year-old Sam and 40-year-old Ariana moved to Youngstown, Ohio, where Sam had secured a job as a surgeon at the local osteopathic hospital. Having not worked in 14 years, Sam was no longer the skilled emergency surgeon he'd once been. A break this long would be really hard to bounce back from, especially in a highly specialized and complicated arena like neurosurgery. On top of needing to recondition fine motor skills, he'd need to be brought up to speed on novel surgery techniques and technologies. Surgical domains of all types are constantly evolving, and a lot can change in 14 years. Considering this, it would have been extremely irresponsible for Youngstown Osteopathic Hospital to immediately allow Sam to start operating again without supervision. No matter how glowing his brother's recommendation letter, Sam should have been consistently and heavily monitored after such a long and traumatic absence. 
Surgeons literally hold lives in their hands, and they need to make expert-level decisions in the blink of an eye. It's an incredibly difficult job, and even the most skilled surgeon constantly needs to upgrade their education and skill set. To complicate matters further, Sam was now addicted to alcohol in addition to prescription medications, which he was unable to kick even after turning his life around. Even in hours preceding an important surgery, Sam couldn't resist a drink. Dr. Shepard was quickly becoming his own worst enemy, and he was about to find out just how dangerous he was. Coming up, Dr. Sam Shepard puts his patients in danger. Now, back to the story. The brutal murder of Dr. Sam Shepard's wife, Marilyn, was only the first in a long string of tragedies. Found guilty for Marilyn's murder, Sam was behind bars for 10 years, missing out on his son's childhood. Even after he was eventually freed from prison and declared not guilty, Sam found it difficult to adjust to regular life. Still, he tried to move on. Through a family connection, Sam had been lucky enough to land a job as a surgeon in Ohio. But his years out of practice and newfound substance use issues made him a danger to patients. On May 15, 1968, just five days after he'd been hired, 44-year-old Dr. Sam Shepard operated on a 40-year-old female patient who needed a spinal disc removed. During the procedure, Sam accidentally cut an artery in her back, causing severe internal bleeding. She soon fell into a coma and passed away. It likely wasn't intentional, but there's no getting around it. Sam was responsible for a patient's death. The woman's family sued Sam and the hospital, but Sam wasn't terminated. His employers may have felt sympathy after everything he'd been through and hoped to cut Sam a break. And if Sam blamed himself for the death, he didn't show it. He didn't stop his drug use, change his specialty, or even take a break. And his negligence only persisted. Three months later, he made the exact same mistake while conducting a surgery. This time, the patient died after only three hours. Severing an artery during a disectomy is a serious mistake. And although there's always a risk for this, it's not a common occurrence. This is mostly due to the fact that surgeons know how dangerous it is and how complicated it can make things. It's really an obvious consideration for anyone who knows anything about human anatomy, and surgical residencies prioritize respecting vascular structures. Arterial bleeds during operations can be life-threatening and can obscure visibility heighten the risk of a retained foreign body, and cause infections. Repeating an error of this magnitude for one doctor is almost unheard of, unless, of course, it involves one of the knuckleheads we examine on medical murders. 
In all seriousness, Alistair, it's amazing that Sam made this mistake twice, not to mention only three months later. His job as a surgeon was surely in jeopardy due to his negligence, if not for a suspected malice. While we can't be sure if Sam acted maliciously, his behavior rings oddly similar to that of Dr. Christopher Dunch, better known as Dr. Death, who we've covered in the past. He was a spinal surgeon whose patients died on the operating table, and for years, Dunch killed his victims under the veil of incompetence. He also suffered from addiction, much like Sam Shepard. And while one accident could be forgiven, two patients had now died from Sam's irresponsibility and neglect, if not from intentional acts of murder. In late 1968, the hospital faced two different lawsuits. Hospital employees had to wonder, was Dr. Sam Shepard killing patients? If so, had he killed his wife? Or was he simply the victim of compounding tragedies? The suspicion lingered. Eventually, the hospital determined that Sam was too much of a liability and let him go. And though he was no longer endangering patients, he soon aroused suspicion from his second wife, Ariana. Sam's misuse of prescription drugs apparently grew worse. According to Ariana, Sam would often threaten her and had knives hidden all around their house. She once believed he wouldn't hurt a fly, but living with him showed her a different side. She worried one erratic outburst would send Sam spinning into a violent and even lethal rage. So, on December 3rd, 1968, after five years of marriage, Ariana filed for divorce. She left Sam as she found him, with nothing. Despite the patient deaths, lingering suspicions, and the fact that no good suspect had come to light for his first wife's murder, Sam managed to open a private practice in a suburb outside Columbus, Ohio. But his office was only open for a few hours each day, and he didn't make much of a profit. Then, in June 1969, 45-year-old Sam had an unlikely encounter with an old acquaintance from his school days, George Strickland. Both men had been athletes in their glory days. The only difference? George had followed his passion into a career as a professional wrestler. Meanwhile, Sam's life was in ruins. But their meeting represented a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for reinvention. He didn't want to keep failing as a surgeon. He didn't want to seek handouts from his family members. Sam needed a new source of income, a new way of life. So he decided to join George in the professional wrestling business. A mere six weeks later, Sam was in wrestling shape. It may not have been the safest career choice for a man in his 40s suffering from addiction, but Sam seemed to truly enjoy his time as a professional wrestler. And more than that, 
the chance to reclaim his name. The same newspapers that had once accused him of murder were unsure what to even make of this startling new turn. Sam had taken back his narrative. Though his taste in doing so was questionable. In the ring, Sam wore a white lab coat and a stethoscope. He went by the name Killer Shepherd. Again, questions arose. Was he an innocent man remaking himself, or had he gotten away with multiple murders and now chose to taunt the world? Either way, it proved to be a massive draw for audiences. Sam played for crowds as large as 4,000 people. Although near broke, Sam donated almost all of his earnings to cancer research in memory of his father, Richard. He seemed to want to use his unasked-for fame to do good. The mark of an innocent man. Though this may also suggest that Sam had little expectation for his future, which may very well have been due to the fact that he didn't seem to want a future. To those who knew Sam, it appeared his substance abuse issues may have turned suicidal. Around this time, Sam's wrestling manager, George, invited him to live in his home with his wife, Betty, and their 20-year-old daughter, Colleen. Sam even pursued a relationship with Colleen, something George didn't seem to mind. The two spent little time together outside of their home and had virtually nothing in common. Nonetheless, they eloped on October 21st, 1969. But a third marriage wasn't the answer to Sam's woes. Just five months into his marriage, Sam was drinking about a quart of vodka every day. His worsening health forced him to cut back on wrestling, even though it was his primary source of income. He relied on the Strickland family to get by, became soft-spoken and emotionally fragile. His relationship with his son, Chip, remained distant. Though they saw one another occasionally, the father and son had never truly repaired what they lost while Sam languished in prison. And Sam's window to move past the injustices done to him seemed to be closing. Late at night, on April 5th, 1970, he collapsed in the Strickland's home. Betty Strickland offered to call an ambulance, but Sam insisted he be left alone. He was a doctor. He knew what treatment he needed. A few hours later, he asked to be dosed with a benzodiazepine that goes by the generic name chlordiazepoxide, which is usually prescribed for anxiety and sometimes for alcohol withdrawal. It's possible Sam may have attempted to stop drinking but he wasn't doing better. Throughout that night and into the next morning, Sam stumbled through the house, muttering to himself about prison. At around eight in the morning, he began to vomit blood and collapsed. 
Sam's conduct was deeply concerning, but it wasn't surprising from a medical standpoint. It's likely that he was abusing the chlordiazepoxide, which is generic for Librium, or was using the medication in conjunction with alcohol. Either one of these scenarios could have produced the behavior Sam was displaying, as both substances are central nervous system depressants and have heightened synergistic effects when used together. Alcohol can also interfere with sleep, so this could have contributed to Sam's nocturnal activity around the house. Additionally, benzodiazepines and alcohol can each provoke vomiting on their own, and this reaction is more likely when the two were combined. Furthermore, the blood in his vomit was probably from an alcohol-induced ulcer. All of this paints a disturbing picture. Despite Sam's physical pain, it must have paled in comparison to his psychological agony. The fact that he couldn't stop abusing himself is very telling. As a former doctor, he surely knew what he was doing to his body. At the age of 46, Dr. Sam Shepard passed away. His determined cause of death was liver failure. Those who had known Sam in life joined reporters at his funeral service. As his surviving defense lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, helped carry Sam's body to its final resting place, he wondered if Sam's story was really over. After all, there was so much still unknown about this man who had escaped prison only to be defeated by the outside world. His son, Chip, may have felt the same, but he was unable to attend his father's funeral grappling with the burden of grief. Chip soon turned things around, however, when he joined a support group for the families of murder victims. In the years that followed, he devoted himself to clearing his father's name. In 1989, 42-year-old Sam Chip Reese Shepard stood before a crowded Cleveland auditorium to announce this very intention. Eight years later, on September 17, 1997, over 40 years after the murder, Chip ordered his father's body exhumed and tested against evidence from the crime scene. His DNA profile wasn't a match. And furthermore, Investigators later confirmed that a third person had been both present at the scene and injured in a struggle with either Marilyn or Sam. Emboldened by the results of these tests, Chip brought his father's case to yet another trial on January 31, 2000. He went after the state of Ohio for wrongful imprisonment. However, he and his team had little new evidence to offer other than DNA testing based on 40-year-old samples. On April 12th, the jury came to the peculiar result that Sam was not innocent. Essentially, this means the jury didn't have enough information. While they couldn't prove his direct culpability in the death of his wife, they couldn't declare him fully innocent of the crime. Dr. Samuel Holmes Shepard is one of the only people in the world to have been declared guilty, not guilty, and not innocent 
for the same crime. Whether or not Sam killed Marilyn, his actions contributed to the deaths of at least two of his patients. It's interesting, Alistair. I actually remember hearing about the case as a kid. This episode triggered a lot of memories for me, but it also made me think about how tough it is to pull someone out of the fire once their addiction issues grow so out of control like Sam's had. Regardless of his guilt or innocence, Sam Shepard's substance abuse was pretty understandable, and his underlying issues would have taken a very long time to sort through. Although it would have been a valiant effort, his addictions prevented him from facing those demons, and they ultimately killed him. Getting clean is always the first step, but it's usually more of an ambivalent leap than a simple step. There's definitely a lot to unpack in terms of Dr. Shepard's legacy, and his story is one that won't soon be forgotten. Dr. Sam Shepard's case in 1954, considered by some to be the trial of the century, set an unfortunate precedent in how the public and press react to gruesome true crime stories. His narrative captivated the world and was adapted into multiple television shows and movies throughout the latter half of the 20th century, The Fugitive only being one example. Additionally, Sam's 1954 trial had far-reaching consequences in the legal world. The so-called carnival atmosphere upheld by Judge Brythen, the jurors, and the reporters in the courtroom provided an example of justice miscarried. It stabs at the importance of an impartial judge and jury, particularly one free from the influence of the press. While the town of Bay Village never had to pay any price for their exploitative witch hunt, Sam certainly did. He lived a short, shameful, tragic life, one that kept going well after everyone had moved on to the next story. Ironically, perhaps in spite or because of their desire to punish Sam, they may have let the real killer go scot-free. As of 2021, Marilyn Reese Shepard's killer is still unknown. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Alistair. For more information on Dr. Sam Shepard, among the many sources we used, we found The Wrong Man, the final verdict on the Dr. Sam Shepard murder case by James Neff, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Eric Stankey, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Murder.